If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, and it is one of the four Gospels. The Gospels meaning is is the story of Jesus' earthly time here on earth. Uh, Some people call it, it's the good news, right? And so it's the first Gospel. And last week we began, uh, Pastor Josiah began a new series uh, for the next three weeks that we are doing entitled The Gifts. The gifts. We're taking a deeper look uh, at the three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus. Understanding that they were not just regular gifts that were given to Jesus and his earthly parents, and they weren't just randomly chosen, but gifts that had incredible meaning and really tell us about his purpose and God's plan for him. And uh, last week, Pastor Josiah started with the gift of frankincense. And I'm going to try and recap a little bit of last week to catch you up. But I'm telling you, it went a little deep. As I watched the video back, because again, I was at the Vikings game, sorry. I watched the video. Uh, it went into some very deep meaning and some, a little bit of Jewish history. Uh, so I won't be able to go into great detail without going really, really long, and we don't want that this morning. Uh, So I want to encourage you that if you did not uh, catch last Sunday's uh, message, check that out. You can find that on our website. You can go on YouTube. uh, But check that out. I will briefly try and give you an overview. We looked at how frankincense was used, uh, finding out that this gift was actually a very practical gift. But there was a massive spiritual side to it as well. We saw that frankincense was used by the priests as they offered incense on the altar in the temple. Josiah also talked about how the priests were a representation of the people to God, but they were also a representation of God to the people. Priests were like a bridge. They were a mediator between two kingdoms. And we saw how the gift of frankincense foreshadowed Jesus as our high priest, the one who would bridge the gap between us and God. And he ended last week by challenging us to really feel the significance of him being that mediator for us, to not brush by the significant role that he played in bringing us the ability to be in relationship with God that hadn't been possible since the Garden of Eden. Again, there was so much more history and details, uh, and I will just once again say, please, if you did not, uh, if you were not here last Sunday, please check that video out. It was was very, very interesting, very good, and it challenged me as I understood one of the roles that Jesus plays for us, a very important role, and how significant that is in my life. This morning, we're going to look at another one of those gifts, and I just want to challenge us. Let's be ready for what God has to say to us, to move into our lives, to once again show us something that maybe we've never understood the significance of before. My prayer really for this entire season, is that we don't just look at Christmas as a, this, a season of the year. That there's something deeper for each and every one of us. That, that we are actually open to God, revealing more of himself to us each and every day. So if you're willing this morning and you are able to do so, would you please stand as we look at our passage in Matthew this morning? Again, we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And it says this, The wise men went their way, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them 
to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just ask for you to just be here this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just fill this place. God, I pray that right now any distraction, any wall that is built up for what you have for each and every one of us today, that you would just break it down. God, help us to just allow you to speak to us. Help us to open our ears and our hearts to what you have for us. Help us to focus on what we have now, not what's happening in a couple hours or tomorrow, God, but right now. Let us just sit in your presence. God, use me and speak through me. Help this message to be your truth, your words, not my own words. And God, we just give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. I think a lot of us have read this passage. Obviously, we read this passage last week. We read it again this week. And we visualize what it would have been like uh, at the time when the Magi brought their gifts or the wise men. I'm guessing that most of us have a pretty similar scene in our head. Last week, Pastor Josiah kind of dispelled the fact that we really don't know if there were three wise men. We just know that there were three gifts. There could have been a hundred of them. I don't really know that that could be possible. A hundred wise men? Come on, ladies. You with me? Come on. Come on. Let's be real. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm so not sorry. But this week, I would also like to just share a little bit of information uh, that will continue to mess up your beautiful manger scene that's sitting in your home or in your head. I like to mess things up a lot. Um, it's more than likely that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would have been in a house by the time the wise men traveled the distance to get there. Uh, they weren't still in the stable like we all have depicted in our homes or maybe in our heads. Uh, Jesus was very likely not an infant anymore. Uh, most scholars believe that he was probably well over a year old, 18 months, perhaps up to two years old when they show up. And I don't know about you, but that changes my visual quite a bit. Picturing now in my head three wise men bowing down to a toddler. I don't know. It's not quite as peaceful, right? I mean, how many of you guys have a two-year-old in here? I mean, or maybe you've had a two-year-old. Maybe you've played with a two-year-old, babysat a two-year-old. Anybody that's been around a two-year-old, I mean, can picture any of these scenes. You're in a restaurant, and the toddler is screaming and banging on the table and throwing everything off the table. Or you're in the store, and they're ripping everything off the shelves. And they're, they don't want to leave now, and they want a drink now, and they want food now, and they want candy now. They want it now. And, and you get what I'm saying. They scream, they cry, they kick, they hit, all of these things. This is a toddler in my head. And I used to think, I used to think when I would be sitting in a restaurant, man, can you please control your children? I say used to because I nannied for two years. And you learn that you can't negotiate with terrorists. You can't negotiate with them. Not at all. 
When you have a two-year-old or you have watched babysat, nannied, a two-year-old that is out of control, you will do anything to make them stop. I will give you $1,000. I will give you my iPhone. Please play that song for the 900 millionth time. Here, watch Disney Plus one more time. Let's watch Frozen and sing Let It Go. Anything to get you to stop crying. I'll give you a pony. I'll give you a race car. I will give you 10 dogs. I don't care what it is. Please just stop. This changes my visual. This changes my visual. Magi, wise men in flowing robes, bowing down and offering a gift to a toddler. Now that maybe I have created a more accurate scene or created some nightmares and PTSD and some parents sitting in here, I want to get to the gift and what we want to look at and the significance of the gift. We probably don't know a lot about myrrh. Maybe some of you do. Again, it is used in oils. I don't want to talk about it. It's mentioned 17 different times, though, in the Bible. 17 times myrrh is mentioned. We see it mentioned all the way in the book of Genesis, associated with the caravan of men who ended up purchasing Joseph and hauling him to Egypt. We also see it in Exodus as a, a specific mixture that was used to anoint absolutely everything in the temple, every utensil, every bowl, altar, every piece of the temple worship was anointed with this. It was also used to anoint the priests that would be serving in the temple. Oil of myrrh is also mentioned in the book of Esther. It is mentioned in Psalms in the book of Song of Solomon. 17 times. In doing some research, the gift of myrrh in the time of Jesus would have probably had a higher value than even gold. Myrrh had many medicinal uses, such as fixing oral health, creating youthful skin, and boosting the immune system. Myrrh was also used as somewhat of an anesthetic. In the book of Mark, he tells of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was offered a mixture of wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. More commonly, though, myrrh was used as an ingredient to embalm the dead. We see in the book of John, Nicodemus bringing 70 pound, 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made with aloes and myrrh. So as I was looking at this gift of myrrh and trying to understand the significance of it this week, what I, what I really saw was this, is that myrrh was foreshadowing Jesus' death. His death. Great gift for a toddler, right? An unusual gift. And I know for some of us, we sit here, and as I said before, maybe during communion, we understand the Christmas story that he was born for a reason. Maybe you have the picture in your head of the manger and the shadow, and it foreshadows the cross. And we understand that, but do we understand the significance? Do we feel the weight of that? I think we can better understand not just the thought of someone living and then dying, but actually the life that Jesus lived was the life and death of a suffering servant. There was so much more in between. We have this amazing perspective of God's story. We have the Bible. And if we take our time, we can understand him more and we can see the story playing out and find these 
connections. But for us to understand sometimes what God is saying, I think it is so important for us to understand maybe what would have gone through the thought of a reader when they saw that they brought him myrrh. What would have triggered in their minds? And so I like to pause and think about that, and I, I referenced it earlier that in the story of Joseph, myrrh is not really directly related to the story. In fact, you can very easily miss it. But I think it's interesting that myrrh was mentioned there when you think about the life of Joseph and the life he lived and the choices that he made and the significance of his role in the history of Israel. The suffering that he went through being sold into slavery by his own family. The abandonment. The accusations that were brought up against him as he was in Egypt, even though he was doing the right thing. But even through all that, Joseph was the one who really saved Israel, in a way, from the famine. The sons of Jacob were saved from death and allowed them to survive, and the nation of Israel grew from there. In Exodus, like I said, it is a very important ingredient in the mixture of the holy anointing oil. I think it's interesting that we talked about Jesus as our high priest, and this was something that anointed him as our high priest. It was a holy oil. It was not to be used outside the temple. In the story of Esther, maybe some of us don't even know this story, but in the story of Esther, myrrh is brought up, and I find such significance in the similarities between these lives and Jesus' lives because she was a woman who was taken from her family, put through a process of preparation to be brought before a king, hiding her background, being put in a position, and then having to make a choice whether she would self-sacrifice in order to save her people. Myrrh is mentioned in her story. And so I always like to think, like these people, okay, they hear myrrh and they think these stories and these, what, what were the characteristics of these people and how did they save Israel? And yet these people, even looking back and they're making the connections in the past, they're looking forward to a Messiah to bring them true freedom. And so sitting there, they're like, who, who is this Messiah going to be? What is he going to look like? We've had these amazing people, but there's got to be something more. The prophet Isaiah prophesied uh, with great detail about the coming Messiah. Trying to bring the people hope and help them recognize who he would be, he prophesied about Jesus and his life and what it would look like 700 years before he was born. 700 years. His description of a Messiah is not what they had envisioned. A conquering king that will come in and take over, end the oppression that they were experiencing. According to Isaiah, the Messiah would live a life of suffering. We see it in Isaiah 53. It says this, He was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with, the deepest, with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. 
And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone straight away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He had done no wrong, and he had deceived, never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. For a moment, I want us to think about who this was, again, originally written to and what their thoughts were. Isaiah's description of the Messiah, not probably what they wanted to hear. Their version of the Messiah or Savior would look more like a conquering king that will come in and take over and end all the oppression that they were experiencing. According to Isaiah, the Messiah would live a life of suffering, a life that would end in death. I find it very interesting, especially when I look at Joseph's life, how similar it was. I see the words rejected, despised, punished for sins he did not commit, oppressed, treated harshly, most of his life spent as a slave or a servant, but always focused on God, trusting that through it all, God had a plan, a plan for good and not evil. And I sit back and go, how'd you guys not make this connection? How did, they, how did the connection of seeing God's plan, the commonality between the description of Joseph and how they, the high regard that they had for Joseph and how he lived his life, that it really wasn't going to be a powerful takeover with authority, but it would be a life of humility and servanthood. To be a slave, to be a sacrifice, to die on behalf of many. I just have this challenge for us. I think it's so easy for us to sit here and read these stories, to see the prophecies, to see the big picture, because we have from Genesis to Revelation. How much easier is it for us to see the whole plan or the entire map? We like seeing the end game, right? But my challenge is this this morning is, are we any different than that reader back then reading Isaiah? Are we making the connection that Jesus is a suffering servant? And how are, how are we different from them? We looked at the passage in Isaiah, and I think at the description of the Messiah and the suffering that he would endure, but I think a lot of us don't pause or take in verse 6 very well. All, we, like, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We're like sheep. We're stupid. Come on, I'm stupid. We're dumb. I mean, I was, I was listening, I heard a story about sheep where I think 1,400 of them like went over a cliff in like 2,000 something. 
And not all of them died because the first 140 like made a pillow or something. I don't know. Sheep are dumb. Don't you think after 10 of them jump off the cliff and they're like, that does not look, they, they just keep going. I sometimes I look at the Old Testament, I go, how did they not see this foreshadowed? How did they not make the connections? And I, I look down on them and yet I find myself doing the exact same thing. Not understanding the magnitude of my part in his suffering and death. I like to take verses a lot when I seem to be pretty high on myself and I change the words from we to I. Every single one of us were a part of his suffering. So I want us to not forget and to be grateful for his willingness to take on our sins, our failures. He took it on for for each one of us. The other thing is this. We're no different than those early readers because they wanted a king. They wanted authority. They wanted somebody to sweep in and make everything right. And they missed the humble servant, the suffering servant. We are no different. We love to talk about and read the book of Revelation. And we see Jesus riding on a white horse with blazing eyes, his burnished feet, his thundering voice with stars in his hand and a sword from his mouth. And we get excited about that and we go, that's the team I'm on. How many of us are picking the role of the servant? How many of us are willing to do what Jesus challenged each and every one of us to do in the book of Luke when he said this to the crowd, if anyone wants to be My follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Which Jesus are you holding on to? I'm not here to tell you that we can't have that hope, and I'm, I'm excited for Jesus to come back and make this world new, to recreate it, to renew it, to restore it to the way he intended it to be. But let's not miss what he's calling us to do now. Let's not miss the suffering servant, being willing to sacrifice of ourselves anything to fulfill God's purpose, to move his story forward, to be a part of his story, let's focus on that. I'm just going to have everybody stand for just a moment. As I was putting this together this week, I'm like, there's, there's so many things and so many directions, and you could make this a 14-hour sermon or make it really short. You're welcome. I made it short. But my challenge this morning for you is this, is, is maybe we reflect on the story and we think about the gift of myrrh and the foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Like, 
I want us to understand that, but I want us to understand the in-between. And this Christmas, not just go from the manger scene to returning in glory, but let's walk with him in the suffering. Let's be willing to sacrifice ourselves. Let's be willing to do what he is asking us to do to accomplish God's plan to the best of our ability. Let's remember the myrrh, an ingredient of an embalmer, and understand the significance and the impact of that in each of our lives. Because I think too many times we breeze by our, the Bible stories, we don't take the time to understand the significance or maybe the, what God is trying to say to us to give us a visual of what he has for us or what he is asking us to do because we're in such a hurry. We miss the in-between. And if we miss the in-between, we, we dismiss the end and what his death meant and what life that brought us. Let's remember the myrrh that foreshadowed the death. But let's remember the in-between and what he is inviting each and every one of us to do in following in his footsteps. Father God, I'm a sheep. <laughs> God, my prayer this morning is that as we think about this gift of myrrh, that we actually remember your death and feel the weight and the significance of it. And that wasn't an easy path, but it was a life of abandonment, a life of abuse, a life of sacrifice, a, a life not, not caring about his own self. God, I hope as we walk out of here that we're not just cheering for the king that will soon come. God, we look forward to that. We, we're, we, we can't wait, God. But you have something for us here and now. God, help us to jump on the bandwagon of, of you as a servant. God, help us to be humble. Help us to change our focus on who you are and what you have for each and every one of us every day. God, we, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your son. And God, I just pray for anybody that has never started that relationship with you this morning, that this morning that you would just speak to them in just such a powerful way to help them understand that you did this for them. That you sacrificed yourself so that they could know you, that they could be in relationship with you. That it's not just about going to heaven, God, but it's about living a fulfilled life, a life of purpose, a life a part of your story. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the significance if we stop and, and look and understand. God, use us this week as servants. Give us opportunities to, to be the hands and feet of you to people in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our communities this week, God. We love you.
And we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.